The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn to Psalm 17. We're going to look at the first nine verses today. Uh, The Psalms are many people's favorite book of the Bible when they're asked, uh, what are the Psalms? They're a collection of songs and poems for worship, celebration, and confession. King David wrote 73 of them. 51 are anonymous, and there are a handful of others uh, that wrote some of them as well, including Asaph, Solomon, and uh, even Moses, who wrote Psalm 90, I believe. So, um, That's where we're at. We're in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 17 does not give us enough description to know for sure what situation David is seeking God about, but we know that there were several situations in his life that could have caused him to write this prayerful song to God, uh, including the persecution of King Saul. Uh, When you see how David talks in this psalm, it's likely this was the point in time he was Uh, writing in, but uh, we don't know that for sure. So there was also others that persecuted David and gave him a hard time. So uh, that's where we find ourselves. We're in Psalm 17. If if you don't have a Bible with you, um, we will have the words on the screen so you can follow along. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please stop at the connection kiosk after service. We always have lots to give away, uh, and we like to do that. So let us bless you with a Bible. All right, we're going to read verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 17. Here we go. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You've tested me and you find nothing. I've purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I've kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I have called upon you. For you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me and my deadly enemies who surround me. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now, If we read the first five verses here without taking great care, we could come away thinking that David assumes himself to be blameless. Here's some of the things we see. In verse 1, he says to God, hear a just cause. In verse 3, he says, you've tested me and found nothing. In verse 5, he says, my feet have not slipped. Now, if this was the case, if David was coming to God with this prayerful song as if he was completely blameless. That would be very problematic because we know that Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the scriptures teach in unison that Jesus is the only man to ever walk in perfect righteousness without sin. So what do we have here? Is David praying here with a deluded sense of self-righteousness? The answer to that is no. How do we know? Well, we know from other Psalms that David wrote that he's not in any way confused about his lack of perfection in the ultimate sense. There's also some specifics we can draw from this text to know that, but let me read you a couple excerpts, short, from other psalms that David has written uh, to help us know that he doesn't think he's perfect. 
Psalm 32. When I keep silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 51, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge." And so we see here, and from many other examples, David clearly is not deluded into thinking that he is without sin. So what is going on in these verses? Well, theologians and commentators have offered a few possibilities. Two of those possibilities seem most plausible to me, and one more than the other. It seems here that either David is pleading his case based on God's merciful willingness to extend grace and to treat him as a righteous son, even though he is a sinner... It's either that, or he's speaking specifically about his innocence in this one case uh, that he's addressing, where he's being slandered and persecuted. Now, because he goes on here to list specific ways that he has resisted the temptation to sin in this situation, it seems to me the second option is what we're seeing here. That David is not in any way claiming to be blameless before the Lord in, in an ultimate sense, but in this situation, he has done all he can to come before God and to be blameless, okay? Uh, now, the first thing I think is important for us to note is the process by which David speaks this way. Because he didn't just look at the situation from his vantage point, placing himself as the supreme judge and arbiter of the situation. We see in verse 2, he invites the judgment of God into the situation. Let me read that to you again. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. We see that uh, whenever, whenever we're experiencing points of conflict or, or disagreements with other people, I don't know if you'll, you'll, you'll be able to admit that this is true or, or acknowledge or, or understand that this is true, but whether it's other Christians, it's coworkers, spouses, even children, what we should do, in the same way we see David doing here, is we should assume that we have blind spots. We should assume that we can't see all sides of the issue perfectly. We should assume our own motives are stained by the blindness-inducing poison of sin. And we should humbly welcome God and God's people to examine us. We must care more about God's justice and God's righteousness than being right in our own sight. And we see David welcome this kind of judgment in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Here he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. This kind of humble acknowledgement that we are often incapable of judging ourselves circumspectly, it doesn't come naturally. It takes intentionality, and it takes the help of the Holy Spirit. And it's still going to be hard, because our natural tendency is often the exact opposite. 
I'm not sure about you, but when I am in a conflict with somebody, my first natural instinct is not to be suspicious of my own motives and gracious in my estimation of the other person's. That's definitely my first natural tendency. I can tell by all of the holiness and the stares in the room that that's just me by myself. I just, I'll just confess my sin. You guys, you can do your thing. I, I think that's true for many of us. My first natural instinct is to begin to build a mental case for why they just simply aren't seeing the truth. My first natural instinct is to be defensive and not open to the possibility that iron sharpening iron doesn't only happen at a Bible study, but sometimes in the red-hot forge of conflict. Most of us can acknowledge our lack of perfection in a broad doctrinal sense. Most of us know what Romans 3.23 says. Most of us understand the doctrine of sin. And it's kind of easy to acknowledge that one, because you can do the old, well, nobody's perfect. Of course I'm not perfect. That's, that's easier to say than when it gets a whole lot more difficult to acknowledge because that lack of perfection that we have, it extends into and it shapes our thoughts, motives, and reactions in every single situation, right? So it's very easy to say, oh, well, I'm not, yeah, of course I'm not perfect. But okay, let's take that and apply that to the person you're arguing with right now or the person you're upset with right now or the situation, the conflict, the issue, how does that apply? It's very much easier to be suspicious of the other person's motives than my own. <laughs> to be gracious with myself and not with them. If, <clears throat> at this point, if you're having trouble conceptualizing this in a practical way, I'll, I'll give you an example. Does, does this sound familiar to anyone? Well, I could be wrong, but... Or... Well, I could be missing something, but, right? Because we all know in our minds and in our hearts, we're saying that with a bunch of sinful sass because we don't believe there's a chance when we're saying that that we're wrong. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but you don't actually think there's a chance you're wrong, right? Does that ever happen? Am I the only one that said that as a pleasantry? Or to make it seem like I was being humble in my estimation. You better agree quicker. I'm not, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I know I'm not the only one. So don't, don't make me push the screws in harder because you know I'll do it. <laughs> we all do that. And, and what I'm saying, friends, is we need Jesus to help us say those phrases. Well, well maybe I'm wrong. And, or maybe I'm missing something. We should be able to say those phrases with pure, genuine humility and a real understanding that our imperfection as a result of sin means we are always working with blind spots and that we need help to see things clearly. Every one of us is in that place. Now, I mentioned earlier that including good counsel from God's people in the process uh, is helpful, but remember this when seeking that counsel and when giving that counsel. Uh, the book of Proverbs chapter 18 gives us some wisdom on this. It says, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. So when you're struggling with deep hurt or offense or even petty drama any, or any other form of human conflict, remember, 
you will have a tendency to build a case in your own mind for your own rightness and then plead that case to God, but also to trusted advisors. And so what I'm advocating for is that we all ask the Lord to help us, to fight this tendency, to be more suspicious of our own motives and conclusions than those of others. Now, if you are a trusted advisor, if you're someone that people are coming to, don't just agree with your friend who's coming to you to help judge the situation. Be a good question asker. And love your friend enough to assume that they are not blameless and as pure as the driven snow in the situation just because you love them and you don't know so-and-so they're hacked off at or you know them much better than their spouse and, 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 and whatever, whatever. I tell people when I'm trying to you know, love them and talk to them and offer pastoral care, I'll tell them, okay, if I've got you on the phone, I'm going to be poking you. We're going to be talking about you. You can, you can, I mean, I'm willing to hear what you got to say about the other person, but really, what I want to hear, what I'm going to mess with you about is you. Because us both nodding our head about how much of a bummer the other person is, that's not helping anything. Because my assumption is somewhere in these layers, the imperfection of sin is affecting the way you're seeing this. You guys aren't happy about that? I wish you'd just agree with me so we can yell about the other person. That's a lot better. I get it that that's like more fun, but it's sinful. So we're not going to do that, okay? Amen. <laughs> wow. Tough crowd tonight. You guys eat nails or something? Yeesh. All right. Um, here's the thing. Our enemy likes very much to keep people away from Jesus, convincing them they have no need for his grace and mercy because they can stand on their own righteousness. And that's what it could look like if you didn't read carefully Psalm 17, what David's doing. It's not what he's doing, but it is something we are all tempted to do. Is it not? It is. Now, David has gone through the process of inviting God to examine him. Okay? He's, not, he's not saying anything about what he's saying uh, with, without having gone through this process. Right? He's saying, the Lord, vis you visited me in the night. He's asked for him to use his wisdom to assess what's going on. He's gone through all that. Uh, he did that instead of just assuming. David's not just assuming that he is all-seeing and all-knowing, and thus he is always right. And in doing this and going through this process, there's a couple of sins he lists here that taking this humble approach has helped him to avoid. Because he's gone to God with this situation, a situation that whether it was Absalom when his son was trying to kill him, whether it was Saul trying to kill him, in, in every way, David was a victim here, for sure. And yet, he's still not jumping to the conclusion that uh, he is perfect and blameless. He wants God to be examining him all the way down to the level of motive. And because of that, because he goes to God and because God is helping him to work through this and he's running this through the grid of what God has said, right? It says, as for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips. So it's God's words. It's God's wisdom that David is using to assess this, not how he feels about it. Um, that's not the high watermark of, of how to judge what's happening. So what are, these, what are these sins? We see them in verse 3 and verse 4 that by God's grace and help and because of this process of bringing this issue to the Lord, he's avoided. The first is in verse 3. It says, you've tried my heart, you've visited me by night, you've tested me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth, my mouth will not transgress. 
And in verse 4, he says, I have kept from the path of the violent. Now, these two verses, along with the rest of the psalm, as we read through, we'll get the second half next week, it show us that David is trusting God's judgment and his vengeance instead of taking his own. That's the big idea. And so in, in the small ways that that's worked itself out is that in trusting God's justice and vengeance, David has not with his mouth sinned in trying to defend himself, justify himself, speak ill of whoever it is that's persecuting him or slandering him. He's kept his mouth in check by God's grace, and he's also not gone the way of the violent. And, and in both of those, the overarching idea is he's trusting for God to handle the reputation issues, and everything else that comes along with that. Now, in our modern culture, here in the U.S., it's less likely than in times past that vengeance would rise to the level of cutting someone down with a sword. But that makes verse 3 even more important to us because most of you in this room get upset at your spouse, upset at someone at work, upset at whoever, wherever, whenever, there's not a super high chance most of you are going to grab a sword and go do violence. But there's a pretty high chance you're going to run your mouth. None of you? I have, I have the wrong people? Oh, it is you. Okay, good. All right, awesome. This is helping us. Here's the thing. When we feel, when we feel like we're right or we feel like we've been wronged. We often feel justified in taking vengeance with our words. And we can excuse that because, well, at least it's not physical violence. doesn't seem as bad, but here's the thing. James says the tongue is like a fire. And Proverbs says that life and death is in the power of the tongue. And so this is also sometimes exacerbated by modern technology because uh, keyboards are a lot like beer. They make people very brave and also sometimes stupid. And so people like to get on the internet, and uh, they'll say some old crazy stuff, man, that they would never say to you in person. Uh, some of you will say some old crazy stuff with your keyboard that you would never say to somebody in person. And we, we got to watch that, man. We, we got to watch feeling like we're justified because someone took a pot shot at us in, in going in on that kind of stuff. We're called to be peacemakers, man. And we're definitely not called to take vengeance or try to destroy somebody, whether it be in like a physically violent way or even just in reputation. We're called to walk in love, to speak the truth in love, as my brothers were talking about, that they're here for training and taking that back home. It, it, it happens with the internet. It happens with people. Um, there's, there's a lot of times where we just feel like because that person did that or said that, whether it's our spouse, sometimes it could be our kids, a friend, someone that we're serving with in ministry, we, we, we just we feel justified in opening that mouth gate and letting some stuff out that is not helpful, it's not wholesome. I mean, the Bible talks real seriously about us governing our words, understanding there's an accountability for what we speak. And that's because the Bible puts a higher value on words than we often do. We're very, we, we all, we just talk a lot. <laughs> we, we would probably all do better just to reduce the word count in general. But aside from that, it's, it's that there's a caution. We have to understand that words have weight and they can cause damage. The tongue is like a fire. We can do a lot 
of damage. We can cause a lot of problems by the way we speak and what we allow ourselves to say in moments of emotional, uh, being emotionally heightened or um, feeling wronged, feeling hurt. Something that we see uh, of, of the big ways David is saying, I'm not taking vengeance. One, one of the big things he ten, you know, makes the point to mention here is he's not going to transgress with his mouth. Uh, and that's something I want to pray, uh, and I hope all of us will pray, that God would empower us to do. Because um, it's, it's, it's almost too simple. Uh, and we can, we can brush it away and we can justify, but uh, that doesn't stand before the Lord. Here's the thing. When we truly trust the sovereignty and vengeance of God, we are freed from the destructive practice of taking vengeance on our own. Let me say that again because it'll help you if you'll believe it. When we truly trust the sovereignty and vengeance of God, we are freed from the destructive practice of taking vengeance on our own. And I've been talking a lot about words because that is, in, in our context, the most likely way people are going to take vengeance. Um, but thankfully, for those of us who would be prone to go beyond words, uh, this also applies in terms of actual violence. And uh, I, I realize as I get older, um, you're going to hear my stories multiple times. So those of you that are, have heard this one, I'm sorry. But I just don't have a better one for this idea, okay? So uh, about, about nine or ten years ago now, um, I was doing general contracting, and I was up in Vandalia. I parked my van outside of the project that I'm working on, uh, left it unlocked because I'm a doofus, walked inside. I was, I was coming right back outside in my defense. I walked inside and walked outside another door in the building, and I was, I was walking backwards like this along a, a chain-link fence line, and the parking lot's over there. And I'm walking backwards, and I'm looking at the building because we had sprayed painted it the day before, and I'm looking to see if the sheen matches, okay? So just the day's starting, weather's nice, great. I hear something, and so I look over, and uh, in this parking lot, for some reason, people turned around a lot. So this car kind of peeled off, and I'm like, eh, it's probably just turning around. And that's not what happened. I backed up a few more feet as I'm still checking the building, and I can see then that my van door is open, and there's some stuff on the ground. I'm like, okay, sweet. So I jump the fence, run over, look in the side of the van, and all of my most expensive power tools are gone. Okay, so I slam the door shut, I jump in the van, and I start barreling down the road the way those guys went. Got up behind them at the next stoplight, called the police, said, hey, uh, these guys just stole a bunch of my tools, here's their license plate number, we're turning right on such and such road, looks like they're heading for 75, uh, and I'm going to keep following them so you guys can send somebody, I'll stay on the phone with you, tell you where we're at. The 911 operator says, sir, you need to stop following them and go back to where it happened and made a couple report. And keep in mind, this was a long time ago, okay? <laughs> so I was younger and probably a little more foolhardy. So uh, I said, wait a second. So you want me, they have all the tools I use to feed my family. So you're telling me you want me to stop following them and go back to where it happened and make a report. That's what you want me to do? Yes, that's what you need to do. I said, okay, I'm not going to do that. I said, I'm going to keep following them. So are you going to send somebody? No, sir, we're not going to send anybody. I said, okay, you're going to hear about this on the news. Hung up on her, chucked the cell phone in the passenger seat, stomped on the gas, and now my plan was I'm going to hit him with my van. What's up? <laughs> this is 
an illustration of sinful vengeance, okay? This is not right. <laughs> this is dead wrong. But this is where I was at. Uh, didn't have time to run it through a biblical grid and was too immature probably at that moment to come to the right conclusion. So uh, they got onto 75 South. We were doing about 75 or 80 on the shoulder. They pulled off into downtown Dayton. I followed them. Crazy things ensued. I mean, we were going, running through gas station parking lots. It was nuts. Uh, it would have probably made a great chase scene in a movie. Um, eventually, they were in their neighborhood. I could tell by the way they were turning, so they knew where they were going. Eventually, somebody cut me off, and they, they got away. So I went back to the job site, and a cop showed up, and he took the report and um, dusted my van for prints. And when I gave him the license plate number, he typed it into his computer. I looked over his shoulder and memorized the address. And so as soon as he left, I went to the address. Uh, and thankfully, by God's grace, uh, the people that live there had been... Um, They'd been raided for, I think, methamphetamines or something a few weeks before, so they were not there, and I did not find them. I drove around the area a while longer. The whole time, I'm, I'm in this sinful, like, seeing red. You know, if I find this little grand dam, I'm going to flip it over and get my tools back. Um, but thankfully, God is a good God, didn't let me find them, and I went back the next day to the job site, still fuming, planning on maybe doing some more driving around that day, just, like... Some of that old, sinful, bitter anger before Christ ever came and changed me, was, it, was, it was coming back. Like it, there was, That darkness was rising. And I could take you to the spot where I was coming, I was coming around that building. I was just checking some things. And, and as I lit, it's so surreal how I can see it in my mind. I lifted my foot up, and just as my foot hit the grass where I was walking, I heard the Lord speak to me, and he said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And right then, in that moment, my heart, all of that, God just graciously broke me. And I remember like almost being unable to even understand how I was where I was at 10 minutes ago. Um, right then, I, I broke down to tears. I repented to God for the, the, the bitterness and the anger and whatever violent imaginations I had about what was going to happen when I caught these guys. And I prayed for them and asked God to free them from whatever caused them to do that kind of stuff, you know, figured it was probably drug-related, and uh, just let it go. Um, and the, when, the, when the police took the report, they said, listen, the tools are gone by now, and we'll probably never find them. That's the reality. Two and a half to three weeks later, I got a call. The cops picked them up. Uh, they did jail time. I was told by uh, their legal representation that they were being put into rehab, so that prayer was answered. Uh, they, were, they were told to pay restitution. My insurance paid some for the tools, and then the people of God came together and helped me with the rest. So I ended up with brand new tools, better stuff than I had before, a clean heart, and all the glory to God. And so my point in all that is glory to God, not to me, because if I would have had my way for the 24 hours that I was doing my own thing, um, you know, I would have been in jail. So vengeance, when we try to take it ourselves, never, ever, ever, ever works out the way we think it's going to work. Nor is it ever our place to take it. And that's if someone steals your tools, or that's if your spouse says something smart that you don't like. And you, you now feel like letting that go is, is now you're going to let them win, so you've got you to gotta jab back. And that's, you know... Brother David 
preached about it a few weeks ago. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. There is no end to that cycle. But when we trust that God is just and he will hand all things, he will make sure everything is, is doled out equitably in the end. When we can place every wrong done against us in his hands and trust that whatever he does with it will be right and far better than what we could ever do. We are then free to walk in love. We're then free to walk in grace. We don't have to carry the weight of that. I hope you're excited about it because I am. Because I carried the weight of bitterness for years. I carried the weight of anger and the darkness that that brings. It's no way to live. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Praise God. Now you might be sitting here thinking, well, okay, if vengeance is bad, why does God get to take vengeance? And we can't. Well, friends, it's the whole thing we're talking about that this psalm points out to us. God can take vengeance because every motive he has is perfect. He does have perfect circumspect vision. And so when, when he exacts vengeance, he knows all the factors. He knows everything that's going on. And when he does it, it is always just and right. You, you and I have to come to terms with this. We will never be able to righteously move forward in vengeance because of our imperfection, because we have this struggle and the stain of sin. We have blind spots. We cannot, in the same perfect holiness that God can, bring down justice on somebody. And I know we all like it, right? We like when Liam Neeson tells the guy, I'm going to come and get you, and one man undoes the entire mafia circuit. Like, I get it. I know. I like Westerns too, right? When the guy comes in and, you know, the bad guys took over the town, and one dude knocks them all out with his six-shooter. I get it. That feels really cool. But it's not real. It's not really how it works. God is the only one who is just enough, holy enough, and perfect enough to take vengeance. The rest of us need to take it into our hands, that temptation, place it at his feet, and walk away. There's freedom in that if we'll do it. We're going to need his help for it, because vengeance is the natural tendency of every human heart. <clears throat> now, Everything we've talked about thus far, it leads us to this understanding that some people stay away from God because they refuse to acknowledge their sin and their need for his grace. Some people actually are doing what it seems, if you only casually read Psalm 17, what David is doing. They really think they're good enough themselves in their righteousness to come before God. And so they, don't, they stay away from Jesus because of that. But some stay away from Jesus because they are very aware of their sin and they don't see or understand the beauty of the next few verses. So let's read verses 6 through 9 together. Let's see what we're talking about. He says, I've called upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. There are many people who can't possibly believe God would see them as the apple of his eye. And what does that expression mean? Well, what it's talking about is if, if I throw something at you and it's headed towards your face, you instinctively, without even having to really think about it, are going to raise your hand to protect your eyes. 
Your body is built with eyebrows, eyelashes. There's a ton of built-in protection systems that God has designed because the eye is very fragile and very important. And so part of what's being said there is that the eye is worthy to be protected and it's precious, okay? And so there's, I know that there's some of you within the sound of my voice, some that might listen to this later, some of you even that have put faith in Christ, but you still struggle with this belief. You struggle to really, in your heart, all the way deep down, believe that because of how aware you are of your sin, that God could love you like that, that God could see you as that precious and that worthy of his protection and defense. There's many of you that don't believe you could ever be worthy to enjoy the security and safety found in the shadow of his wings. What does that mean? Does that mean God has wings? No. When we say we believe the Bible, we take the Bible literally, we understand that there's analogy in the Bible. When the Bible says Jesus is the door, we don't ask what kind of wood is Jesus made out of, right? And so this is just an expression. Jesus uses this expression also when he says, uh, like a mother hen, I wanted to draw you in close. And so it's, it's this idea of how a, a mother bird will use her wings to protect her young. And, and there, I know that there's some of you that believe you are you are so far gone, or you're so dirty, or wicked, or whatever lies you've believed that God would never, you couldn't ever be worthy to be drawn in that close, to be protected and cherished like a mother bird would protect her young. There's some of you that know you're broken. You know that you're vengeful, and in and of yourself unworthy to be that close to a God who's that perfect and holy and glorious. I know this because of lots of reasons, but I've, I've actually had people say to me, uh, I, there's no way I could come gather with the people of God because I feel like if I walked into a church building, it would light on fire. And I know that sounds like real dramatic, and maybe, maybe that is some hyperbole on their part, but they really, like, in their heart believe they can't, there's no way. I can't come anywhere near God. He's not going to want anything to do with me. But to those of you, dear friends, who stay away from Jesus because of those beliefs, what, what we must see, what we must understand today is that it was, it was never David's own righteousness that he was counting on. He knew it was not his good works or his lack of sinfulness that caused God to see him as precious and worthy of defending. What was it? What was it? that allowed him to speak to God like this and count on God treating him this way. Well, friends, the key is in verse 7. He says, Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. That's the key. It's not about our goodness or our badness. It's about God's loving kindness. This is the first time in the Psalms you see the word loving kindness. There is a covenantal connotation in this and that this is the way God draws people in close and he loves them. That he does this through covenant. It's pointing to this beautiful overall message of the scriptures that David couldn't see the whole picture of, okay? David saw the shadow of it in the law, in the sacrificial system, that okay, God said that the penalty for sin is death, but he made it so that lambs and goats and sheep, their blood could be shed. That would cover the sin for a little bit. He saw and he began to understand that, yes, God is merciful, that God doesn't hold us every time to the punishment that we deserve, but he didn't see the fullness of it. He was looking forward to something. But we have seen 
the whole thing. We have the fullness of Christ's precious gospel, and we've been given the privilege of holding in our hands the entirety of the scriptures, where we see all these things ultimately fulfilled in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the message of the scriptures, that God made mankind perfect, told them, one thing, do not eat of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. We did the one thing, the one, we believed the lie that the one thing God said don't touch was somehow going to be better than him, that he was trying to hold some good thing from us, and we still struggle with that lie today. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has chosen our own way, and none of us could ever in, our, in and of ourselves fix that problem. Once the stain of sin has soiled our garments, once we have gone from being perfect to imperfect, there is, there is no way back. We are all born into sin. We are not perfect. We need grace. We need a savior is the language that David uses. And that's, that's the big problem. There are so many people that believe this aberrant, false gospel that is so prevalent. I, I get, it breaks my heart how often I will ask someone, hey, how do you think it is that someone is in right relationship with God? Most people use the terminology of, well, how do you go to heaven? Because most people are just thinking about that, right? Like, I just don't want to go to hell. I, I'm thinking in terms of how do, you, how do you be in right relationship with God? So many people will give some form of an answer of, well, be a good person. I don't know how many of these conversations you have. I'm, I'm encouraging you to have more because there are so many people out here believing that it's got everything to do with hopefully they can be good enough. And, and don't you see how that would cause you to justify yourself? Don't you see how that would cause you to do whatever you could to not feel like you're a liar or that you're not totally uh, truthful or that you steal or that whatever it is or that you're angry or that you're vengeful? Of course, if you believe that, you've got, you've got to try to convince yourself in your own mind just to stay sane that, hey, uh, I'm not as bad as, you know, Name the person worse that I can think of. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible way to live. God has more for us than that, friends. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is our hope. The gospel frees us from endless self-justification and the denial of our ability, of our inability to judge perfectly. And it also frees us from believing that we're not worthy of coming to God because of those sins and all the others. You see, the gospel frees us from constant self-justification of feeling like we have to somehow try to be perfect, convince others that we are, convince ourselves that we are, or at least good enough by whatever measure we use to think that God's going to be happy with that. We, we can be freed by the gospel from that endless rat race. But the gospel also frees us from staying away from God, thinking that we can never be good enough for him to love us and draw us in close, to see us as the apple of his eye or to let us rest in the shadow and security and safety of his wings. It's not about you and what you've done. It's about Jesus and what he's done. The question today is not, can you get better? The question today is not, can you do more good things and less bad things? That's not the question, friends. The question is, will you believe God? Can you trust that what he has said in his scriptures are true, that mankind is sinful, that Jesus came to save us, and that if you trust him, that you will be saved? Can you believe that? That is the gospel. And that's why it's good news, friends. That's why it's freedom for captives. And there's so many people that don't know. And that's, so what, that's why we can't just sit in here and sing about it and clap about it and nod our heads about it. We got to go out from here and tell people 
that there is hope in Jesus because they don't know. And this is the best news anybody could ever hear. And we've been entrusted to share it. Praise God. May we walk in the liberty the gospel provides, not trying to justify ourselves, but knowing that we are justified in Christ. And may these truths free us to be gracious in conflict and trust God to distribute both justice and mercy according to his perfect will. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this psalm. Thank you for the bright light it shines on our tendency for self-justification, or the tendency we have for seeing others, uh, their sin, their shortcomings, and, and, and oftentimes being blind to our own. But thank you, God, on the other side, it shows us that for those who are hyper-aware of their sin and unable to conceive of your ability to love them, it, it shows us that grace is available for us. So I thank you, God, that no matter where we land on the spectrum of, or the ditches of avoiding your gospel, of avoiding you, Jesus, you can speak to us through your word. You can help us and bring healing. Thank you, God, that your desire is to draw us in close, that you would allow us to rest in your shadow. That's close. That's real close. I'm glad that you're not some distant God that just set things in motion and stepped away, but your desire is to be close to your people, and God, we need that. We are hungry and thirsty for relationship with you, for nearness to you. And Lord, we confess right now that we are often distracted from that. We often are willing to settle for far less than the beautiful destiny you have for us of being your children and, and inhabiting your very presence. But God, we don't want to. We don't want to settle for counterfeits anymore. And we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to see in what ways we're doing that. God, please help us to be peacemakers. Help us, God when we're in conflict with others, even, even when we're the victim, God, help us not to assume that the stain of sin is not affecting the way we're seeing that. We need your help in that, God. We are very good at building a case for why we're right. We're very good at assuming the motives of others, but Lord, please help us humble ourselves and know we cannot see, we cannot even understand the depths of our own hearts, much less someone else's. So God, help us, humble us, Help us to bring these things to you. Thank you for the example that David gave us here. Instead of throwing out slanderous rhetoric, he brings it to you. And he asks you to deal fairly and justly. He asks you to handle it. Because he knows you can see everything we can't see. God, help us to follow in this example. Help us to do this with coworkers, with those that we're serving with in ministry. God, help us to do this with our spouses, please. We need your help in this. With our children, help us, God, to be ministers of peace everywhere we go. We need it. May you be glorified in this. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.